Well, we are starting here in chapter 18. Then the Lord appeared to him by the Tenerbeth trees of Mamre. Remember, Mamre is where he bought a cave, basically, and buried Sarah there. Um, Hebron, right next to Hebron. Hebron's a very well-known uh, place throughout the Old Testament. He, uh, Mamre, Hebron, they're right together there. And he was setting in the tent door in the heat of the day. And this culture, when it got hot, you didn't do anything for a few hours. Tried to find him shade. <laughs> and he had his tent put under, or maybe not where he slept at night, but during the day he had a, a tent put up under the Tenerbeth tree to try to get double the shade, to try to stay cool. And he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men standing were standing by him. And he saw them, and he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. So he's there, he's hot, he's, I don't know what all he's doing, but typically you would see people traveling at a distance going, oh wow, you know, in 10, 20 minutes they're going to get here, you know, I wonder if they're going to be coming by this way. But he didn't, that didn't happen. The, the progression of them coming towards him didn't happen. All of a sudden he sees them uh, not too far away, but here's this 99-year-old guy. In the heat of the day, he's a little surprised, sees him maybe at a football distance away, I don't know, football field distance away, and, and he takes off running, this old guy, pretty good shape. Don't, don't forget, he's going to live to be 175 years old, so this is sort of midlife, you know, sort of like a 35-year-old, and he, he's running. You, you know, it ends up being God and two angels. But it reminds me of that verse in Hebrews 10 or 13 too, that when you don't forget to entertain strangers, so by doing some unwittingly entertain angels. Well, he looked. He was thinking spiritually. He didn't think these were just three ordinary guys. He had a sense that this is something more than just three men. They all looked like men. That was his first impression. But as he got closer, he found himself bowing to the ground. They were greater than him. Um, and he is showing subservience to them. And he said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Some of you might remember that. That song, you know, pass me not by, oh dear Savior. Come and set a while. Do you remember that song? Pass me not by, my dear Savior. We'll be sharing that song coming up. It's, it's one of the ones in Jim Simbola's book that we're reading together as a discipleship leadership group. And, and he, it's a song that means a lot. But this, that song comes from here, where Abraham is saying, don't keep going. Stop for a while and, and be with me. He realizes this is a moment that he needs himself to seek after. 
And so with passion and desire, he, he persuades them, so it seems, to let him be their servant and is set here. Now, it's interesting that he says, please let a little water be brought to wash your feet. Don't know if, they're, if angels and God's feet are dirty, but, <laughs> you know, it was customary. But I'll tell you what, as I read this this week, I literally was stabbed to the heart and wept. Abraham got to wash Jesus' feet. Wow, the very thing Peter wanted to do, <laughs> he got to do. And then a couple angels' feet he got to wash. Boy, who can say that besides Abraham? I don't think anybody. And then he says, rest yourselves under the tree. Man, it's cool over here. Take a break. And I will bring a morsel of bread, and you may refresh your hearts. Have that you may pass. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. And they said, oh, do as you've said. And Abraham hurried into the tent and to Sarah and said, quickly, make ready three measures of fine mill kneaded and make cakes. Don't you hate that, gals? I, I mean, I, I literally go from not being hungry at all to starving to death. And it all happens in less than 30 seconds. And, uh, and of course, we had three sons and they were all that way. My wife has had to hear that a lot. Quickly! And, uh, and then Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender, good calf, grabbed up a, a baby calf, and he gave it to the young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So she's kneading in the kitchen, and, and he's barbecuing things up. And then he took butter and milk and the calf, which he had prepared. I'd like you to make a note there. He wasn't kosher yet. Yeah, in the Jewish culture, uh-uh. You, you, you go to McDonald's in Israel, never do you get a cheeseburger. Doesn't ever happen. Because you can't combine the two later in their dietary laws. But not yet. There's no law yet. So just to let you know, God's not kosher either. Uh, nor angels, evidently. And so uh, he prepared it and set it before them, and he stood by them under the t tree as they ate. So he fixes it. It's just for you. Again, this is very customary. I've been in Mexico and had this very thing happen where they made this amazing meal, set it in front of us. They watched us till we were done eating. And when we were finished, you know, they kept saying, you want some more, want some more? They kept putting it on our plates. And then when we were done, whatever was left, the kids now could eat. Um, very humbling, especially when they were very poor families, uh, which wasn't the case here, but still, it's a very humbling thing when you, you realize that it's all for you. That's why we're doing it. So eat till you're full, and if there's anything less, then we might eat. And in verse 9, and they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? Now, understand, when God communicates with us, he has to communicate on our level. There's a word for it. It's called anthropomorphism. It's where God takes human qualities, characteristics, and applies them to himself. 
You know, God knows everything, right? I mean, God knows every hair on Sarah's head, not only where she's at. But God communicates in this way, not because he doesn't have the knowledge, but he's operating on a level that we can get and understand. And so he says, hey, where, where's Sarah, you know? And of course, she stayed inside and cooked all this stuff, and he brought it out to them. Evidently, Sarah didn't uh, come out to them and bring it, help bring it, and help set it and say hi. Wasn't culturally done. So where is your wife, um, Sarah? And they, they knew her name. Where is Sarah, your wife? So that's like, ding, 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 ding. Wow, how did he know my wife's name? And he said, well, here in the tent, she's back here. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So realizing she was just on the other side of the fabric, <clears throat> and he, he probably said it louder so she makes sure she could hear it. Oh, Sarah's right there. Okay, hey, next year at this exact time, 365 and a quarter days, uh, I'll be here. And, and Sarah is going to have a child, a son. Now, Sarah, it says in the end of verse 10 there, was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. We happen to know from the early, earlier chapter, he was 99. That would make her 89. Somewhere in there, we don't know, know exactly the months on those things. So obviously, menopause was well over is the point they're making. But then in verse 12, therefore Sarah laughed within herself, not out loud, but within herself saying, after I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely be a child, bear a child since I am old? Remember now, this is all happening in her heart. She didn't say it out loud. She didn't laugh out loud. Which is, again, a really key insight that he's saying, I know what's happening in her heart. You're right. I'm not a regular man, a regular guy here. This is the Lord. And, and then Abraham actually says that. In verse 13, we have now, earlier, if you go back up to verse 3, he uses the small l-o-r-d, which is Adonai in the Hebrew. But now he understands in verse 13, and the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is the tetragrammaton. Y-H-V-H or Y-H-W-H, it's transliterated, not translated, transliterated, taking a Hebrew letter and saying, what English letter does that most look like? And that's how we get the enunciation, Yah or Yahweh, which is what the Jews say today. Now, understand this during the mid-ages, around Martin Luther's time, a little before, the, the scholars said, maybe since this is a, a only word that doesn't have vowels, only consonants, maybe we need, we're supposed to dis, decipher the code. So they took the vowels out of Elohim and put them between the consonants, Y-H, W-H, or V-H. They couldn't quite decide which letter would be appropriate. So both were used. 
And then they said, well, what if we take the letters out of Adonai and do the same? Now, in the German, Y is a J sound, a J sound. That's why you have the enunciations that the Jehovah Witnesses love to use, Jehovah. I, I was a good friend with a guy that was uh, the head of the entire England over the Jehovah Witnesses. Then they moved him here. He's over Southern California, Peter Barnes. And if you ever said Jehovah, he would just cringe. Yahweh. <laughs> Yah or Yahweh. Do not say Jehovah. And uh, again, that's how that alliteration of Jehovah came about. But it's Yah. So now the Yah said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Man, that verse 14, underline that word. Boy, that, that's a, a theme that goes through the Bible. I could stop right now and teach our Bible study on just every time the Lord had to say to his people, why are you struggling? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Nothing's too hard for the Lord. There's nothing impossible, and, there's, and all things are possible, Right? If he's the infinite, all-powerful God, of course he can do anything. Nothing's out of his reach. At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Now, Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh. <laughs> she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Interesting to see the Lord having this argument with her. No, 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 I beg to pardon, you did laugh. Now, a couple of things we find interesting. Because in the previous chapter, in chapter 17, it tells us that Abraham was 99, and it also tells us that God had told him word for word the same thing. Look with me back to that chapter in Genesis 17, verse 15 to 19. And Many commentators think this is maybe days before he appeared to him here. Maybe weeks, at the most, maybe three months. Because he hasn't aged a year, not even a year. It can only be a few months at the most. But he told Abraham this, but it seems that Abraham didn't believe it enough to even tell Sarah. Because it seems like Sarah is hearing it for the very first time. But take a look at Genesis 17. We covered this last week in verse 15 to 19. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah. She shall be her name. God changed both of their names in that chapter. And I will bless her, and I also give you a son by her. And I will bless her, and she shall be the mother of the nations. Kings and people shall be from her. And Abraham, with this man, great man of faith, fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, be, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael may live before you. We already got a great 13-year-old here that meets the bill. He's the son of my joy. Couldn't imagine a better child. And God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. 
and you shall call his name Isaac, which means laughter. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant with his descendants after him. So it doesn't appear that he was talking to God face to face or God was in a physical form with him. He was speaking maybe audibly, maybe in his heart. I don't know, but he's having this conversation and, and in his heart, he is laughing. He falls on his face, but he's thinking God is not really here to see all this action, but God was there to see all that action. Almost identical reaction to his wife, Sarai. I guess after you've been married almost 100 years, you're, you're pretty linked in, in things. And literally the same thing. I'm so old. She's so old. How could such a thing even happen? And he fell on his face. Now, here again is the graciousness of God. God, looking back at our life on earth, we saw this in Jeremiah 31, 34, that he forgets our sins. And everything that's less favorable for us, he forgets. He buries in the decency, scatters as far as the east of the west. And so all that God sees in the New Testament about Abraham is not the progression of his faith that grew, as we'll finally see in chapter 22, whew, rock solid faith. That's all that God sees from that point forward is where his faith landed in his, its maturity. Because if you look after chapter 22, and in chapter 22, Abraham really was an amazing man of faith. And that's all that God looks at. Let me tell you, let me point it out to you. In, in Romans 4, verse 18 to 21, this is all that God has to say about Abraham's faith on this issue in particular. Who contrary to hope and hope believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he's about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He didn't consider that. I just read it in chapter 17. He was totally considering that. But that wasn't the faith that God chooses to remember. And he goes on in Romans 4.20. He said he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. As one commentator said, because in the old King James says he did not stagger. He said he staggered like a drunken sailor, he did. But he was strengthened in his faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able to perform. Wow, that is not the faith we see are looking at in chapter 17 and 18, correct? I mean, I'm not going crazy here, am I? But what we just read in chapter 17 and chapter 18 did not appear that kind of faith. But after a few decades, he did have that kind of faith. And what God said here is true. It's just the best of his faith, not the worst of his faith. Does that give us hope or not? I'll tell you what, it gives me such hope. And what about Sarah? Well, Hebrews 11, 11. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. She bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Ah, oh, this is laughable, isn't it? 
Because that's not the faith we saw here in chapter 18. But yet, ultimately, that would be the state of her faith. And that's the way God viewed her for eternity. And if you want to see the written testimony in the hall of faith, the written testimony in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 says her faith was absolutely extraordinary. Well, moving on now, we have another episode in this dinner story. Then the men rose from there and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation of all nations on the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to do righteousness and justice. Um, that he, excuse me here, I, I got off track here. Back to verse 19. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do Righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he had spoken to him. So the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh said, I don't think he was talking to these angels. I think he was talking to the other two persons of the Trinity. But yet he is saying, do I, do I tell Abraham what's getting ready to happen in Sodom and Gomorrah. And they said, yeah, the whole world is going to be looking at the history of Abraham. The entire world, as they go back through history, he's going to be the figure in all of history where children of faith started and came from. And so what we're doing down there the record of what we're doing down there in Sodom will be known when they're studying the life of Abraham. And his children will discover this story if we go ahead and share it with them now. It will be in the story of history so people know God's feelings about Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the answer was yes, we're going to tell him. And in verse 20, so the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So again, another anthropomorphic statement. But he's saying, I'm going to have a final testimony from these two angels who are going to go and be there and experience the culture, and they will tell me exactly from a heavenly perspective how bad it really is. And again, these are all anthropomorphically God is saying. Now, we only get a very small picture of the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis. All we see is the one single manifestation of homosexuality in a very violent culture 
wanting to rape these two men, they think, which actually were angels. But we get a full picture in Ezekiel's prophecy. God is speaking and he is talking about Israel and he's saying, your wickedness is as great as the wickedness of Sodom. And really, you're a sister to Sodom. It's not Sodom and Gomorrah, but Sodom and Israel. And so in Ezekiel 16, 46 to 50, your elder sister is Samaria who dwells with her daughters in the north of you. And your young sister who dwells in the south of you is Sodom and her daughters. (laughs) You did not walk in their ways nor act according to their abominations, but as if there were too little, you became more corrupt than they did in all their ways. Stop and take a, a breath there. Remember in the Gospels, I didn't have it here in the notes, but remember Israel was rejecting Jesus. And remember what Jesus said? If just one of these miracles were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, if Sodom and Gomorrah had heard a tiny fraction of what you have learned through my teachings, they would have repented and sat cloth and ashes. But yet you, Israel, are hardening your heart. And on the day of judgment, Sodom and Gomorrah is going to judge this generation who has heard the words of the Messiah and rejected him. So even Jesus saw it during his time. But going back to verse 48 of Ezekiel 16, As I live, says the Lord God, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. Now here's the list. Look at the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had, number one, pride. So you say, well, homosexuality is the big deal. No, it wasn't. We're going to find homosexuality was on the bottom shelf. It was the least of the their sins. The first one was just a pride and arrogance. Remember what brought one third of the angels out of heaven, the pride of Satan's heart. Secondly, a fullness of food. They were financially set. They could eat all they wanted. They had no worries about what we're going to eat tomorrow or the next day, just by not having to wonder about whether I have enough food to eat or not was a part of this pride. And because they were so wealthy, there was an abundance of idleness. What did Benjamin Franklin say? Uh, Idle hands is the devil's workshop. And uh, so they were able to have the time to invent evil. They had time to think about how to be sexually promiscuous and and evil in their ways just by having downtime, too much downtime. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy, didn't care about anybody but themselves, even though they had plenty of food. And then in verse 50, and they were haughty and committed abominations before me. There it is, referring to homosexuality. And it's interesting, it doesn't mention homosexuality. It was just one, homosexuality was just one of the sexual deviants that they had. There was probably other stuff going on, uh, maybe bestiality, maybe child molestation, rape, obviously, because they tried to rape the two uh, angels that showed up. 
So it wasn't necessarily the homosexuality that was really on God's mind in destroying them. Jude says it this way in Jude 1.7, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and have gone after strange flesh and set forth as an example, suffering and vengeance of eternal fire. Again, the New Testament didn't mention homosexuality. It just talked about sexual sins uh, that were very horrible. So it was one of many sexual sins. You know, you you don't go to heaven because you're a heterosexual, (laughs) and you don't go to hell because you're a homosexual. You go to hell for not believing on the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive all of our sins. We've all been, in one way, in our heart, if not in act, sexual deviants at one time, right? We've all been liars. We've all been thieves. We've all used God's name in vain. I mean, so again, the the real point, because remember, God was going to destroy Nineveh like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. But yet they repented, and God held back his judgment. But concerning homosexuality, I just want to make it clear here, the Bible does say it's sin. In Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. And then to get more specific, Leviticus 20.13 says, if a man lies with another man as he would lie with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination and shall surely be put to death. The blood shall be upon them. Because it's so weird. In, in the homosexual apologetics today, who's saying, oh, you can be a Christian and God never speaks against homosexuality. They say it's the person receiving it or the person giving it. It's not the other one's innocent, you know. Uh, And then they say, no, it's a non-loving homosexuality. If it's a loving homosexuality, then it's okay. They come up with all kinds of other definitions for it. So it seems like the Bible, twice within a couple of chapters of each other, has to quickly get more specific and say it twice because it's, Men in his fallen nature saying, no, 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 no. Surely God doesn't mean that because these guys really love each other. I understand same-sex attraction. I'm not going to go off and talk about that right now. But having a sexual desire that is ungodly, no matter how strong that desire is, is still sin. Okay? We all have sexual desires that are wrong. We all were born into this world with wrong sexual desires to whatever degree that may be, whatever degree we may lust in our heart or covet another uh, man's wife or another woman's husband. We all have the desire, as it says here, to go after strange flesh, just new, different. What's it look like? What's it feel like? What's, it, what's the experience of it? That, that's in all of our hearts. So... <clears throat> Again, when, when people say, well, I was born a homosexual, I said, well, the guys that are child molesters saying, I've never been attracted to anybody under the age or over the age of 10. That's a very common thing in our day. I, I've been that way since the day, the first time I ever had um, puberty and had sexual desires, I always craved children under 10. That's always been my natural inclination. And when I was 13 and 14 and 15 and 20 and 30 and 40. And so you ask the homosexual, so 
can you say his sex is wrong? Is it wrong for a 50-year-old man to have sex with a three-year-old kid? Is that wrong? Okay, the homosexual will say, yes, that's wrong. Okay, so you do, you do believe there's wrong sex. And you do believe that another person can say to another person, your sex is wrong. Right? That's what he's saying. The homosexual is saying, the man, 50-year-old, having sex with a three-year-old is wrong. Then he is judging his sex life. So we all do it. Matter of fact, you cannot not do it and remain any kind of a civil society. And I'm simply saying I'm doing that to you in your homosexuality because my basis of truth is the Bible. Now, to think that homosexual society stays contained within homosexuality only, completely untrue. Romans 1 talks about how it starts off with evolution, basically. People not wanting to believe in God the Creator not wanting to glorify him as creator, but yet they turn to worship the creature rather than the creator. And when they stop, they start not wanting to give glory to God for creation, it creates this darkness in man. And that starts to go downhill. It starts to progress deeper and darker and deeper and darker until eventually men are craving men and women are craving women. And then it gets so intense it says God just steps out of the way. I'm going to quit being the wall. I'm being the wall, keeping the society from becoming a homosexual permeated society. But then there's a point where God won't resist the free will of man. He steps out of the way. And then there's just this flood of homosexuality in the society. Men burning in desires towards men and women burning in their desire towards women. And he says in verse 28 of Romans 1, verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality. See, now watch how it's going down. Wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, their whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, those who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, they were raised in the church, they were raised with a, a knowledge of what's true and right, they didn't help that those who practice such things are deserving of death. The wages of sin is death. Not only do the same, but also approve, or uh, New American says, exhort people to practice the same. They actually got a, got a proselyte. It, they, they want people to try to be homosexual. You, you have any same-sex attraction? No. Have you thought about it, though? Have you tried it? Have, maybe, maybe just try it once, then you'll see that maybe you are. They, they constantly are wanting to recruit more and more to their pagan way. But notice homosexuality, after evolution, so homosexuality, and then you get this violent, murderous, disrespectful, hateful society. And the Bible says, at the rapture of the church, one is taken, the other is left, that we will see such a society. And on top of that, we'll also simultaneously see the violent society of the days of Noah. So it's double. 
the, the world that was destroyed by the flood, that society that God destroyed, and that Sodom and Gomorrah society that God destroyed with uh, fire from heaven, those two societies are eventually going to be the spirit of the final generation before the rapture of the church. And what does he say to the Christians? It'll be a perilous time. Why? Because there's going to be an apostasia, a falling away of true believers. You know, if it doesn't cost me anything, I'll be a Christian. But the day it costs me something, the day I may get beat up or, or may lose my job or can't go to college or uh, be hated by my bowling league or whatever because I'm standing strong as a Christian, then I'm going to quit letting people know I am a Christian and just keep my mouth shut and grin and just fly under the radar. And such a thing cannot happen. God says that that Christian who's lukewarm in that way, it will not last. It's something that makes him ill, literally ill. He wants to throw it up, he says there in Revelation 3. So we have to realize that as we read this story of ancient history, of 2,000 years before Christ, 4,000 years ago, we are also reading what is going to be happening in our society now and is happening. Uh, and it won't just be us. It'll be the whole world will be of this unified mindset. And so when the Antichrist comes in, the whole world's in step with him, thinking the same way he's thinking. And right now, there are many Antichrists in America. Most of them are in Washington, D.C. <laughs> and the ones that aren't there are in Sacramento. And <laughs> So, in verse 22, the men turned away from there and they went toward Sodom and Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Now, the answer, of course, is no. And as we go on in this chapter, he says, what about 50? What about 40? What about 30? God, I don't want to uh, irritate you, but what about less than that? And less than that? And, and what about 10? It's where they finally end up in verse 32. And he says at the end of verse 32, he said, God said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. So Lot, I, I, I guess Abraham thinking, well, Lot's righteous. And you got his wife and then his four daughters and their husbands. Yeah, I, I think we got 10 righteous down there. You're not going to destroy Lot and his family, are you? Nope, I wouldn't. But of course, we know the true answer, right? God wouldn't destroy it if there was one righteous in there, would he? Rahab was one righteous in the midst of a condemned Jericho, all of them would be dead, but she didn't die, right? In verse 33, so the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Basically, what we see here is Abraham the prayer, the intercessor, the one who's wrestling with the Lord, asking, keeps on asking, seek, keeps on seeking, knocks, keep on knocking. And everybody who asks, what? Receives. Everybody who seeks, finds. And everybody who knocks, okay, come on, white people. Let's try it again. Everybody who asks, yeah, seeks, and knocks, 
And so, um, man, you know, the very first time God ever said, write this down, this is Bible. This is the scripture. It was in Exodus 17. When they had to stop traveling because the Amalekites were picking off the weak and the weary and the half-hearted. And he said, Joshua, you got to fight him. They're like, we can't fight. These guys are experienced battles. We've been slaves. We don't even know how to hold a, a bow and arrow. And God said, go. And Moses got up and him and the other old guys were there looking down and, and they were losing. And Moses lifts our arms up and goes, God, help them. And, and they start winning. And he's like, all right. And he's looking again. They're losing again. Hands go. He realizes that I got to keep my hands up. And this battle is not going to be over quickly until the sun went down. Aaron and her, one on each side, helping him try to lift his arms up. And this 80-year-old guy, I can't imagine how much pain he was in. We'll try it this Friday with Chuck. He's turning 80. <laughs> we'll see, see how well he does. But uh, Chuck's one of our members turning 80 this week. So anyway, um, and when the battle was over, then Moses could lift his hands down. And the very first thing he says, go get Joshua. Okay, bring him over here. Write down the story. So Joshua could say, oh, I guess I'm not the warrior I thought I was. It was the Lord. It was, it was Moses and his agonizing in prayer that won the victory. It wasn't us in the valley with our bows and arrows and spears and swords. It wasn't us. Paul tells young Timothy, he's like, I don't know how to pastor a church. I know how to evangelize with you, Paul. And Paul just said, first of all, in 1 Timothy 2.1, supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks, be made to all men. First thing, just be a praying church. Jesus cleansed the temple. And what did he say? My house shall be a house of worship. No, he didn't say that. My house shall be a house of Bible studies. He didn't say that. I mean, I really thought he would have said that one. But he said, my house shall be a house of prayer. You guys are getting better. And at the beginning of the Jesus ministry in Matthew, they said, teach us to pray. And the Lord out of Matthew has a teaching. But then at the end of Jesus' life, at the end of his ministry, he says, teach us to pray again. And he says, well, it's like a guy who has some guests come in at midnight. He has nothing to put before him. And he has to go knock on his neighbor's door saying, give me some bread so I can feed the strangers. And he says, go away. Kids are in bed. The animals are all quiet. Go away, go away. But he persists. And finally, Jesus said, not because he wants to, not because he likes the guy, but because the guy won't stop pestering him. He gets up and gives him all that he desires. And Jesus says, this is prayer. And then he gives that thing, ask, keep on asking, seek, keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking. And then in, in, in Luke 18, he says, it's like this, a widow who needs help from an unjust judge. This judge does not fear God. He doesn't like people. He doesn't respect man. And he only helps people out who bribe him. He's a wicked judge. But this widow says, I can't, I can't do any of those things, and he doesn't go away. But she persists. And finally the judge says, okay, not because I've changed. I haven't changed. My nature is the same. Still don't fear God, still don't like people. But so you will quit pestering me, I will judge in your favor. And Jesus says, what about your heavenly father? He's the opposite of that. 
He loves widows and orphans in need. He, he is one who loves your prayers as incense before him. How much more will God's children get it that if we cry out to him day and night, he hears us and gives us the very things we need. But then he says a weird thing at the end. Footnote. When I return, will I find any faith on the earth? End of story. The last day's church, the apostasia church, <laughs> the church that there'll be less people truly standing for the Lord. Those people, will they be a praying people? You see, all spiritual duties they give us some gratification. Like you're, you're learning stuff. Your brain's being tantalized and you're getting information. And so there's a feedback that's pleasing to the flesh. Worship, it's, it's pleasing to the flesh. You know, a seminar on last day's events, you know, uh, is, is again pleasing. But when it comes to prayer, it's the opposite. It's not pleasing to the flesh at all. And it's, there's no immediate feedback in doing it. There is, the flesh must die to pray. So it is the most important of all spiritual duties, but it's also by far the hardest spiritual duty. Galatians 6, 9 says, don't grow weary in well-doing. You will reap if you faint not. Tell you a story about Elijah. He was a man with a nature like ours. I feel so sorry for that guy. Nothing else stood out. He wasn't super smart. He wasn't super spiritual. He didn't have a great knowledge on the Bible. The only thing in his ordinary, everyday flesh was that he knew prayer. And through his prayers, he brought the entire nation to its knees. You remember that story? And he says, the effective in James 5, 16 and through 18, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails what? Much. much. So important to remember that. Because so often prayer seems like we're really not getting much done. <laughs> we prayed and prayed, did anything? Did God even hear one word of our prayer? Yes, he did. And then Jesus gives us that example in his own life, praying blood and sweat coming to the ground. And he finds his disciples sleeping. Now, I would have thought the Lord, so full of grace, said, you guys have had a tough three years, and this week in particular has been exhausting. Little Peter, just, just sleep. I, 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 got, I got the prayer thing covered. He didn't, did he? He kicked him. He rebuked him. Get up and pray. I know your flesh is willing I know your spirit's willing, your flesh is weak, but I'm sorry, sincerity of heart will not take the place of prayer. There's only one thing, prayer actually has to happen. And if you don't pray, you're gonna enter into temptation. But if you get up and pray, you'll be strong in the spirit and you won't fall into that temptation. And then finally there in Hebrews 5, seven to eight, talking about Jesus in the days of his flesh, Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was the son, 
yet he learned obedience through the things he suffered. Interesting. Jesus' example was prayers and vehement desires to the Father. And he learned obedience through, he's telling us there, through the duty of prayer, the suffering of praying when his flesh didn't want to pray. Interesting stuff. Lord, we come before you now, and as always on Wednesday night, I went longer than I wanted to, but Lord, we just come to you right now and ask in Jesus' name that you would stir us up to love and good works, especially as we're heading in tomorrow to the National Day of Prayer and hundreds of people are coming to our house to pray with us and churches in the area. Lord, give us a passion right now to have great faith and to be men and women of God taking up the cross and following you. Whether it's the duty of evangelism to fill our ministry or whether it's the duty of washing feet and serving one another or whether it is the duty of beating our body, our flesh into subjection and praying when we don't want to pray. Bring us, Lord, near and dear to you and let the love of Christ constrain us. Let your love just cause us to be so stirred up to love and good works for your glory and your kingdom. Let's have a few others jump in and pray here before we start worshiping.